All right. Uh, hello, everyone. Good evening or good morning or whatever it is, wherever you are. Uh, welcome to uh, this thesis theater uh, where Ryan Meniz is going to um, uh, tell you about his uh, master's thesis on brewing Odin's Mead, a reconstructive approach to dramatic verse formula. Um, Ryan has a BA in linguistics and cultural studies uh, from Seattle Pacific University and is a, is a longtime reader of, of ancient and medieval poetry of all sorts, uh, has a longstanding interest in um, uh, connections between, between languages and, and cultures. And that really comes out, I think, in this, in this thesis, uh, looking at, at um, uh, Germanic poetry in various languages that he'll, he'll tell you all about, and the, the formulas that are in there, which are a really fascinating bridge, I think, between the, the, the language, the metrical form, and, and, and the cultural background. Um, so I think I will let Ryan explain the rest of it uh, himself and turn it over to you. Thank you, Nelson. All right, so um, this is kind of a long title, uh, Brewing Odin's Mead, a Reconstructive Approach to Germanic Verse Formula. So I'm going to go ahead and explain pretty much all of the words <laughs> that are used in this title. Um, and I'm gonna actually go backwards. I'm gonna start with a verse formula and work my way backwards from there. Um, so, what I'm looking at in this thesis are verse formulae. Um, and this sort of concept of verse formula is what gives my thesis its title here, um, Odin's Mead, uh, Odin's. Uh, and the concept of Odin's Mead is the material that a poet would have as part of their poetic process. It's the sort of substance of poetic wisdom that can be used. And um, I have this quote here from uh, Fox's um, Poetic Inspirational in Old Norse and Old English Poetry. What Olden's Mead gives is not the inspiration to compose a poem, but the ability and skill to express oneself in verse. So most uh, Germanic verse, and for that matter, most verse throughout history has been oral tradition. Um, it wasn't really until the introduction of writing into all of these cultures that we had any kind of written document of poetry. It was all passed down orally. And I am looking at sort of how we can get pieces of that oral tradition that remain or still exist in the written works that we have. And I'm looking particularly at Germanic alliterative verse. Um, so alliterative verse, there are a lot of different intricacies to what makes up alliterative verse but the most bare bones definition is that you have repeated consonants um, or vowels. With vowels, it can be any vowel. They can alliterate with any vowel. Um, but you have repeated consonants in the line of verse, and the verse is broken up into different half lines. There's a first half line and a second half line. And both half lines have to alliterate with each other. That's the most important thing. You're there needs to be a connection across the half lines. Um, here, I gave an example of a literature verse in modern English. Um, just so you can hear the rhythm, there's usually four primary stresses in, in um, a typical uh, line of a literature verse. We have, out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, I came singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. So the alliteration is going to be on the stressed syllables in the line. Not all of them will be stressed, but, um, or not all of them will alliterate rather, but um, there will be alliteration across the half lines. 
Um, and what I'm particularly looking at are verse formulae. And when I say formula, what I'm talking about is a convention or a um, cliche <laughs> that can be used by the poet when they're reciting a poem or composing a poem that fills the meter. So if you're trying to express an idea and you're kind of in the moment, you're reciting a poem or you're coming up with a poem off the spot, it helps to have sort of traditional phrasings or structures to sort of plug your particular information into or to plug into the wider context of what you are coming up with or what you are reciting. Um, so this example here is from um, Homer. Uh, it's, um, my Greek is rusty, but it's oinops pontos, oinops pontos. And it means like the wine-eyed sea, literally. Um, it's often translated as wine dark sea. And it can be plugged into the Greek verse and it fills the space that you need if you have that size of a, a gap and you're talking about the sea, it's a great um, formula to plug in. So what I was trying to figure out are what formulae were present in the oral tradition of Germanic languages. Um, so here is a sort of rough, simplified uh, tree of the Germanic family of languages. We've got English in uh, the bottom left here. And um, there are three primary branches of the Germanic language family. Two of them have alliterative verse evidence to look at. So I am looking at these blue languages here. Um, those are the languages that I had evidence from to investigate. Um, so I'm primarily looking at Old, uh, old English, Old Saxon, Old High German, and Old Norse um, poetry. And um, here on the right, we have a um, picture of a manuscript. It's the Codex Regius, where um, we have most of our or all of our poetic edda uh, material. Um, this is from Thrymskvila, um, specifically this page. So here, I just have a list of the different documents that um, yielded results for my thesis. So I ended up reading a ton of poetry in all of these languages. And um, these are just the different um, sources that ended up having evidence for me to work with. Um, so it's a wide array of um, ancient Germanic resources that are being used. And um, part of my methodology is I'm looking at, I'm like just sort of going through these poems and noting where I see formulaic elements or elements that could be formulaic and I'm cross-referencing between the different, um, the different manuscripts and the different um, poems. So that is the verse formula and the Germanic part. Now we're going to get into the reconstructive approach. Um, so the reconstructive approach is another way of saying that I'm applying the comparative method of reconstruction um, to verse formula. Um, so the comparative method is the method that historical linguists use in order to reconstruct earlier forms of language that aren't documented um, by comparing the languages that are documented. So we can compare words and structures in languages that we have documents in, and we can sort of work our way backwards using different linguistic techniques um, to arrive at earlier forms. So here I have some examples in some of the old Germanic languages that I um, worked with. Um, this is just the word wolf in these different languages. And by applying the comparative method, we can sort of work our way back 
to um, ancestral forms of these words um, that were not necessarily written down, but we can hypothesize what they sounded like based on the similarities and differences in how they were pronounced in these written languages that we have, um, which can get us back to this um, Proto-Germanic form, which would be around sort of 500 BCE up to like um, year one, um, or a little bit later actually. Um, so what I am doing in my thesis is I'm applying this comparative method to formulae. And um, part of the justification for doing this, I'll explain it a little bit more, um, we do have pretty early evidence of what looks like alliterative verse in older forms of the languages than the ones that we have sort of manuscript texts from. This is the Golden Horn of Galahus um, from Southern Jutland in Denmark, and it dates to around the fifth century um, CE. And it has around the sort of rim of this drinking horn um, in runes, it has this line. Um, I'm not um, super confident in that pronunciation, but um, it, it's saying that I, um, Cleogastes of um, the Holtias made this horn. So this line fits the overall trend of alliterative verse lines. So it, it could be metrical, um, which at least suggests that this sort of form of poetry dates to an earlier point in time than what our manuscripts, than the manuscripts that we have. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm doing a similar process to the comparative method for words. I'm applying that to formulae. Um, and so here we have an example of what that might look like. Um, I have this uh, formula, children of men, which appears in a bunch of different texts. Um, the numbers here um, are just sort of the references of which texts it appears in um, of the ones that I looked at. And we can sort of work our way back when we compare these analogous examples of the formula in the different languages to an early, um, an earlier undocumented, unattested form here, um, which would be children of men. Um, so I'm going to sort of give an example of, of putting this into practice now, um, sort of what the process looked like to apply this method to the text that I was reading. So I have this formula here, each among men, and there are lots of different instances of this, where there was this half line that basically translates to each, each person or every person or every man. And here we have an example from Old English. Um, and this, highlighted part, this is translating to each of the men, it takes up half of a line. So it's filling that half line in that part of Beowulf here. Um, and we see a very similar half line that's cognate. It's made up of words that are the sort of equivalent in Old Saxon. Um, in this example from Heliant, and it's filling a similar function. It's translating to every man. And we also see that here in Havamal, in Old Norse, we have a cognate phrase, gumna um, huer. And 
what you'll see is that it is alliterating with the first half of the line. Here we have alliteration with G in all of these examples. So the poet is composing their poem or reciting a version of the poem that they know, and they get to a part where they want to just say everyone or each person. And their first, the first half of their line, um, the sort of stressed syllable is on a G, it's on a G sound. So then they would want to put something in there that has the meaning that they want and has the form that they need for the meter to work, for the poem to flow beautifully. <laughs> so we have this formulaic element here and it is equivalent or roughly equivalent in the three languages um, that we had examples from. And so what I'm doing is I'm looking at these um, formulaic elements and then I am reconstructing the source forms here. Um, so again, kind of like on the last sort of tree that we looked at, we have the different examples. There are different variations of these in the different languages. Um, and they can be reconstructed to this base form in Proto-Germanic. So there were also some formulae that weren't so clear cut and just filling a half line for the poet. Um, some of them were sort of more general structures that went over multiple lines or spanned, spanned an entire line. So I'll give an example of one of those as well. Um, so there's this formula that I found where anytime both gods and elves are mentioned, it goes in that order specifically. It doesn't really deviate. We always have gods first and then elves. And there could be several different reasons why that may be. Um, but um, we see them in sort of half-line groups, uh, like the type of formula that we just looked at. Uh, for example, there are some in Lokasena here, um, Oza Alva. Um, but we also see it sort of spread out. So here's Volospa. It's sort of spread out in this repet repetition here, um, but it's in the same order. Um, and they're, the same words are alliterating with each other. So we have gods and elves alliterating with each other in that order. Um, and we also see a similar thing in this uh, metrical charm here with Fastitia. Um, So it would have been a charm that was may have been used for medicinal, like traditional medicinal purposes. We are not entirely sure, um, but it has some interesting allusions um, here. And we have Yifetwara Eza Yeshot, Olahetwara Ulva Yeshot. So here we have the same cognate words for gods and elves alliterating with each other and in the same order. Um, and there are several more examples from Old Norse, but this is the only example from Old English. There's actually another parallel line, just two lines down from this in the Old English term. Um, so it's interesting to see this formula spanning across the line rather than just plugging it in to half a line, although that did happen sometimes in Old Norse. Um, so it seems that this formula was more about the sort of grouping and order of these words as it comes up in the different texts. And a thing that struck me when I was looking at different examples of this word um, elves in Old English is one of the only other instances of it is in Beowulf, where we have the first half line here, Eotanas on Ilva. And it's interesting because this means giants and elves um, and sort of undead 
corpses. And Ulva um, here is the second element of this alliterative half line. So it's almost as if this word giants is sort of in the place of wherever gods would be in the formula. If, if there was this formulaic gods and elves and in Beowulf where this is sort of a section of the poem where the narrator is stepping in and talking about a biblical story, um, wouldn't want to put gods there. <laughs> so they put giants there and it slots perfectly and alliteratively and into the formula. Um, so there were also formulae of this type where it was sort of spread across lines. So that is a bit of how I go through the sort of the steps of applying this um, approach to the text. I'm not just reading the individual texts, um, but I'm also looking at the formulae and seeing the connections between them in the different texts to try to reconstruct an earlier form. So after doing this with all of my texts, I found that there were some formulae that were specific to just the West Germanic languages. And um, so those were in, with the languages that I looked at, those were the Old High German, Old Saxon, and Old English texts um, were the only ones that had clear examples of the formula. Um, and these were the ones that I was able to find. Most of these just take up a half line. Um, this one here is sort of a formula used to introduce dialogue that's used a few times in Beowulf, and it's also used in um, the Old High German poem Hildebrandslied. And we, when we see the subscript there, this is just the form of whatever name that you're putting in of who's speaking and whose son they are. Um, and it's in one of these two orders whenever this formula shows up. Um, so these were just in the West Germanic languages. And then with the um, examples that I also found in Old Norse, um, the ones that sort of can span branches in the Germanic family, I separated them into two categories. The first, I did the not necessarily in a half line, but sort of spread across lines type. And I found four of these um, that gods and elves one is down here. Um, but there were many other ones where sort of words were clustering with each other or words and themes were sort of connected consistently across multiple texts. And then um, here I have the half lines that were sort of shared between the different Germanic branches here. And what you'll see um, is there are some examples with variations that I found. Um, there were definitely more variations in the individual languages, but these were variations that were shared across the Germanic languages, that there were cognates in multiple. Um, and the point of these variations is you can swap them out for each other depending on what your alliterating consonant is or, or vowel. If you were using vowels, then you can use one of the vowel ones. Um, and consequently, some of these, the ones with vowels are some of the most common ones uh, because vowels can alliterate with any vowel. So it's probably um, gonna come up whenever you have a vowel and you need this type of word. So whenever you need something with this meaning, you can kind of swap out different words. And in the individual languages, um, there's a lot more variation and different words that they would plug in to this form. And that's what this subscript here means where I have genitive plural. It's just any word that that language has for you know men or people, um, and you're gonna put it in that particular grammatical form. And that can just sort of be plugged in um, to that 
formula um, as needed, depending on what sound you need in the poem. So these were the formula I found. I found about, um, yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is the last one. So I think I'm, that's all I have to present necessarily, but um, I'm sure there are questions. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so thank you very much for that, Ryan. Um, this is a uh, uh, absolutely delightful uh, thesis to be on the supervising uh, end of, and uh, a lot of interesting material, a lot of interesting findings. Um, so I think I've I've got some um, some sort of we we talk about maybe, you know doing a little bit of a, of a Q and A here. I've got some I've got some questions for you. Uh, and then also, if people want to to put in their own questions here, uh, I'll keep an eye on the um, uh, on the on the in the Q and A in the chat as well. Uh, so um, let, let do 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 ask your questions and send us your thoughts as well. Um, the um, um, well, one question I had actually just to start things off is is what kind of got you interested in poetic formula. Uh, what sort of brought you to the, the to the poetic formula as a topic of study in the first place? Yeah, I think it was just noticing it when reading. Um, I I've um, loved reading Germanic verse for a very long time, and um, so I would just like be reading I don't know the Wanderer or Beowulf or something, and I'd be like I've seen that line before. That looks very familiar, um, and it's, it keeps coming up. Oh, oh, they're repeating it. Oh. It's not just in this poem, and I just it just got me going, um, reading more and more poetry and seeing to trying to find what were these different, why are these being repeated, what's the point here, and so that got me interested in looking into theories about how the poetry was performed, what um, what techniques might the poets have used. We can't know for sure, but um, that really got me interested in trying to investigate this as a, a topic. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe we can, maybe we can, uh, uh, I think it'll be easier if we may stop sharing the screen now, oh, yes. it'll be, uh, um, the recording will catch the, the, the videos better. Okay. I've <clears throat> uh, got a question in from, from, uh, from Gabriel. Um, uh, he says, amazing project and presentation. How did you manage your time when researching slash writing? It seems like this project could be really huge if you let it be. So um, <laughs> that's a fun question. Um, I, I kind of just spent all of my time doing this. Um, I'm not sure how to answer this one, honestly. Um, can you repeat the question again, actually? Uh, how did you manage your time when researching slash writing? It seems as if this project could be really huge if you let it. Yeah, I think the thing that helped the most with this, um, it was hard to manage my time. Um, I, I made sure I had a bunch of e-versions of my texts so I can read them on my phone, on the bus and all that kind of stuff, just so I could be reading all the time. But I think the thing that helped the most was that I started doing this before the sort of official thesis time that we have at Signum. Um, so this is a topic I've been sort of looking into for many years now. And so I've had an opportunity to prepare for this in my 
individual uh, Germanic philology classes um, with, so I could be like, if I'm taking Old Norse, I'm gonna focus on the Old Norse stuff and I'm gonna read that and look for formula while I'm here. Um, similar with Old English and et cetera. So that I think helped the most was just having the idea in mind beforehand, of course, not everyone can do that and not everyone knows what their thesis is going to be, but it really helps to build on something that you've been interested in throughout your time um, with your masters. Um, it's good to sort of build on stuff so you don't have to just start completely from scratch at the beginning of the thesis time. I think that helps the most. Yeah, that's very good advice, I think. Um, uh, keep an eye out for if other questions are coming in. Uh, in the meanwhile, I was wondering um, what you, what did you, what did you find more? And I guess this could be either in the thesis itself or in the work you you did in the you know the, leading up to it. What you thought kind of the most um, surprising or or interesting thing that you, or maybe maybe not a big thing even, just uh, you know something that you ran across while doing this. Yeah, I think. Honestly, I think the most interesting thing was how many of the variations were shared. Um, it, when it comes to the variations of the half-line formula, like the each of men or um, sons of men or all of those different forms, I, I knew that the sort of structure was shared between the languages. It was very clear that all of them were using that kind of a device, but I was surprised just how many of them were actually cognate with each other. Like they just used the same word in these multiple languages. And I think, probably the most surprising one was um, the, I didn't really talk about it in my presentation, but the, um, it was the, yeah, it was like the Eutio, um, is that a son one? Yeah, Eutio Barno, I think is the one. Um, uh, because that's a sort of ethnic word. It sort of refers to an ethnic group, um, the Jutes. And um, it's interesting that that came up as a cognate. Um, instance of the formula in both Beowulf and it was used in some Old Norse poems, although in Old Norse it didn't have the sort of same connotations. It wasn't sort of, it was sort of genericized to just any person by that point. But it's very interesting that even that one came up in multiple languages. Um, I was surprised by that. And I think the, also the example from Beowulf with the elves, I hadn't, I didn't really even expect, I, I it was a sort of late thing that I came to to realize like elves was in that same position where it would have been <laughs> in the older formula, but then gods was replaced. That was also really surprising to me to notice. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, actually, another one I, I was uh, that I thought was really interesting that you, you talked about in your thesis that yeah, I don't think I think you mentioned it here, but you didn't really really get into it. I don't know if you if you if you uh, care to expound a little bit on the um, uh, well, in Old English, the forms would be the fair and Aeton one, mm. um, the, the, the life and the giant. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I don't know if it would be good to share my screen again and go back to that slide. But, uh, um, maybe, maybe actually it would be good to go back because that might, that might make it easier. Just have actually, something to look you at. have it on one of the slides, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Hope my screen is visible again. Um, I can see it. Okay. Yeah, here we go. So. Um, yeah, so we have this word, uh, uh, and etonas. So basically what this formula is, is there's a particular word that can mean life <laughs> in certain contexts. It doesn't always mean life. Um, but it's very often used to refer to 
sort of creatures or beings that are also referred to as etans or giants or with with reflexes of this Germanic word etonas. Um, and so there were examples in Beowulf where it was Grendel and Grendel's mother were whenever their life was talked about, it was almost exclusively with this word. Um, and then in Fafnir's Maul, um, uh, Fafnir, the dragon, um, who is originally a dwarf, is referred to, his life is like referred to with this word as well, as well as Regan, his brother. So um, there's like the connection between these creatures um, and this word. And what's interesting is the etymology of this word, it comes from a root in Indo-European that means sort of an oak tree. Um, and it's associated with um, thunder gods particularly. And it's um, that's interesting in and of itself because in sort of um, the Norse mythology, uh, Thor is the one who fights the Ettens. Uh, he's sort of like the, the opposition <laughs> to the Ettens. And so like this, this word that's associated with oak trees and with um, also with thunder, um, his, in some stories, his mother's name comes from this root as well, um, Fjordian, um, that there's this connection here that was really interesting to me. Um, yeah, I, I, thought that, I, I thought that was a really neat one. Um, you, you, do a good, you do a good job of unpacking the, the sort of the mythic complex that sort of is going into all that. Um, let's see, just trying to check if there are, I've kind of lost my um, windows here. Okay, I um, uh, don't see any further questions coming in. Um, so I guess I'll just continue uh, kind of with some of the things I, I've been uh, wondering about. Um, uh, I guess one of them is one of the one of the big questions with, with sort of any thesis is, is sort of what what's the, um, what was the toughest part about attacking this project? Uh, you know, what's the hardest part about you know formulas or, or the, the material that you had to work with? I think the hardest part at the end of the day was the sort of the theory. Um, for me, um, the actual sort of reading and finding the formula and applying the approach was, for me, it was like the most fun part because um, it's it was based on something I already enjoyed doing, which is reading these poems, and also I really enjoy reconstructing. Uh, words. I, I love using linguistics to sort of find older forms of words. So that part was actually kind of the more straightforward stuff. It was just time consuming. Um, so in that sense, it was difficult. But I think the most difficult stuff for me was, um, and I'll go ahead and stop sharing my screen again, um, was um, sort of explaining for myself and for a potential audience what the sort of theoretical um, explanation for it is and sort of the um, not exactly justification, because there seems to be a good reason to believe that this is something we can do, but um, sort of explaining it in a clear way and in a way that sort of makes it makes it flow with what I did, sort of explaining my methodology, how I went about my process, why I'm using the process I am and why I think it's worthwhile to do, I guess, um, to try to figure out these elements of poetry um, that survive from a oral tradition. Um, I think that was the hardest part for me. Uh, well, you mentioned how much fun you had reading the poems. Uh, so a kind of frivolous question uh, that, that maybe is a little, also a little unfair. Uh, what, what was your favorite poem? Oh, gosh. 
that was an unfair question. Um, I think my favorite poems to reread, <laughs> I'll go with my favorite poems to reread because I read all these multiple times, but my favorite re repeat viewings are, uh, The Wanderer is like probably my favorite old English poem. It didn't have a ton of formula in it actually for me to use. It has its own formula within itself. It has a lot of repetition and structure that just is unique to it. And I think that's why I like it. Um, and just the, the themes and the art of that poem is one of my favorites in old English. Um, and then uh, Hovamal is my favorite to reread mm -hmm. in Old Norse. Um, I actually have a, a copy of it right here with me. Actually, this is Jackson Crawford's copy, uh, the Wanderer's Hovamal. Um, but uh, it's just really fun to read. Um, it's fun to see the different sort of wisdom that's um, shared in it, um, the different advice that you're getting, and it's in poetry. So that's easy to remember as well. Um, so that one's a fun one to reread. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any other handouts. I just, I, I liked all the poems that I read. Um, those are, those are two, two excellent ones. And of course they have a little bit of links between them as well. Um, uh, yeah, I think the, the Wanderer is, is definitely very near, if not at the top of my favorite old English poems as well, for sure. Um, uh just checking again uh if there's other questions coming um well i guess a kind of a a final question from me at least again we'll see if if, uh, if any further questions come in would be um where where do you think is there um, what do you see for future directions or further work uh to be done to be done in this area okay so there's sort of two different branches of my answer for that question one is continuing in sort of germanic alliterative verse. There's definitely more text to look at. I did not look at the entire corpus of any of these languages, except maybe um, Old High German. I read Hildebrandstein. I've read some other stuff in Old High German, but there wasn't really anything of note there for my purposes. Um, but apart from that, there's, there's lots of other stuff to fold in. And I've, since sort of finalizing my thesis, I found more examples of formula and other old English stuff. I've been rereading the riddles, and there are a bunch of examples in the riddles. Um, in the Exeter book. And um, yeah, I just keep finding more examples of my formula that I've found and other ones too that I, I didn't get a chance to talk about in my thesis. Um, so there's definitely more to look at. And um, I would also think that expanding it to other sort of pieces of evidence of alliterative verse um, that aren't in the languages that I looked at. So um, like Middle English, which has some alliterative verse and um, like Middle High German, um, uh, there's poetry. Um, some alliterative poetry in those languages that um, we could probably see some sort of descendants of these formulae in there as well. Um, that would be interesting to fold in to this sort of approach. Um, so that's sort of one branch of my answer. My other answer is I'd like to see this done in other languages, um, other language families. Um, uh, I think it's part of my interest in the reconstructive approach is that it can be useful um, to sort of get at a form of poetry that isn't written. And if you're working with oral poetry, um, when you don't have any written records, all you really have to go on is the comparative method. So if you have related languages that have sort of similar poetic traditions, um, you can you know, apply this sort of methodology to get at sort of what are formulaic elements. And if you are in a situation where um, you have a language that 
has or maybe had a poetic tradition that's been lost. Um, but there are sort of maybe related languages that still have theirs. You can sort of apply the reconstructive method to see like what kinds of poetry might they have had before they lost it, um, if they're sort of related traditions. Um, so I would I think that would be also really interesting to see is sort of how this uh, approach might be applied in different um, language families. Yeah, that'd be really interesting to see. Um, Gabriel's got a two part question uh, as well that's just coming here. Uh, first of all, what previous Signum courses helped you the most with your thesis? Okay, yeah, I think um, Signum courses that helped me most with my thesis. Um, I think um, the sort of um, I think the first one was just the thesis course that I that we take early on. I, I think they've changed that now since I took it. Um, this this sort of prereq course for thesis is a bit different now. But in any case, that class is really invaluable to like prepare you to know how you're going to organize a thesis, even if you haven't decided what your thesis is going to be about. Like just getting making sure you get down like the process of like citation and keeping your documents in order like getting all that work cited stuff as pre-done as you go as possible. Like as, if you're using a source, oh, let me make sure I know like the publication date and the author and all of that. So it's easy, easy for my future self to do. I think that class was just really great in setting me up to be able to do this throughout. As I took other classes, I could sort of have that in the back of my mind as I was going. Um, so that helped a lot. And then really just the individual classes for the different Germanic philology, um, the different Germanic philology courses that I took, the Old English course, um, Intro to Old Norse, um, those different classes of Germanic philology one and two, and then also sort of the more, like sort of the second semesters of each of those, so like Beowulf for Old English and um, the Eddic poetry for Old Norse. Um, those classes were, I think, the most helpful because they were just me reading these poems. <laughs> that was sort of the, the classes, read and translate these poems, and that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Um, at least I'm, I'm reading the poems. And so as I was going through those classes, I'm like doing my work for those classes and then noting the sort of where my on the side. Um, and I think the second part of that question was like advice for starting the thesis. Yeah, uh, hot tips for tips for students starting to, to sorry, preparing to start the thesis. Okay, I don't know if I have any hot tips. I feel like all the, all the tips have been cooled a bit <laughs> because everyone's given similar ones, but they're all helpful. Um, I think for me, um, a tip for preparing to start my thesis, um, if, if I were to do this again, um, is if you have your topic or an idea for your topic, um, don't wait until thesis starts to um, look into it. I'm not saying like start writing your thesis before the thesis class, but if you're interested in something, just dive into it, just do it take note of what you're doing while you're doing it. So like maybe if you go back and use it for your thesis, you'll have that record to just sort of pull in. Um, but really don't don't be scared to dive into whatever topic you're interested in. If there's reading you wanna do, do it, don't wait. Because <laughs> um, that'll save you time later. And um, it it will also help make sure you're doing something that you really are interested in while, while you're doing your thesis. It's something you're already interested in, so it's not gonna feel like hard work as much or at least it's not going to feel like something you're being forced to do because um, you've already sort of dipped your toes into it 
I think that's an excellent piece of advice. All right. Um, well, I, I don't see any further questions coming in, and I don't have uh, a whole lot more um, uh, my, on my end to ask. Um, so it's been about 45 minutes, so maybe we should wrap it up here, unless anyone else, I'll just give, a, give another moment here if anyone's desperately typing away at the, the chat. Um, uh, okay. Um, well, I just like to thank you again, Ryan. It's been uh, really great to watch this thesis come together. You worked really hard on it, and it's a really good thesis. Uh, you've, you've, you've done an excellent job here. Um, very interesting material, and um, I, I think you did an excellent job here, a great job here of just uh, of telling everyone about it and presenting it. So I hope everyone else enjoyed um, hearing and seeing all about this as much as I've watched uh, hearing and, and reading about this last uh, couple terms here. Um, so yeah, just thank you a lot for that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was really great to be able to do this, especially with guidance, because there are definitely a lot of parts where I was, I'm not sure which direction to go, or I needed help getting these resources, so you were very helpful <laughs> with this um, thesis. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, I've got a congratulations uh, coming in from, from, from the audience, um, and thank yeah, you. I think they're very much in order. So. Um, Thank you everyone for attending and thank you everyone who might watch this on in the future on youtube i hope you hope you've enjoyed it and i hope you all have an excellent day evening night whatever it is for, for any of you